Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Thank you so much for joining us on the Black Doctors Podcast. Of course, this month we are celebrating women. It is Women's History Month, and we have some fantastic guests lined up for you. This week, we're speaking with uh, Dr. Asase Obo. She is a uh, medical student, but she will be finishing in in a couple of weeks, so we're going to go ahead and claim that title. She's also uh, completed her MPH. And in addition to her already very busy schedule as a medical student, she is the national president of the Student National Medical Association, which again is the oldest and largest independent student-run organization that focuses on the needs and concerns of Black medical students in the U.S. Dr. Obo, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate the uh, encouragement with claiming Dr. Obo as the title. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, so close, so close. You're going to be there before you know it. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, so, so let's jump right into it. Um, you, you were applying to internal medicine. When did you decide that that was a specialty that you wanted to do? Yeah, you know, it was actually my first uh, clerkship. So I had already kind of rolled out a lot of the other, I guess, competing specialties that were competing for my attention. So I had rolled out OB-GYN uh, by that point. I was pretty sure surgery wasn't going to be for me just because I I was an athlete back in the day and I have arthritis just about everywhere and I didn't think that it would be the best. You know, it it, it is what it is. I didn't think it was going to be the best uh, uh, option for me uh, just in terms of like this quality of life. Um, And just knowing myself, I think that I'm a pretty broad person. I have my hands in a lot of pots and I realized that I... In, that the part that I enjoyed the most about medicine was getting to know a lot about everything. And so that kind of left me with um, emergency, internal medicine, peds, and uh, family. And so by the start of third year, I knew that I enjoyed outpatient, but I wanted to at least be able to have either equal parts of inpatient and outpatient medicine or more inpatient than outpatient. So that kind of ruled out uh, family medicine for me as well. Um, but <laughs> But yeah, so I, I had internal medicine first, and at my institution, we have four-week-long clerkships, which is quite short, uh, so you have to kind of hit the ground running uh, to, to learn as much as you can. And I realized within the first two weeks, I think I had at least three patients that were readmitted, um, just from some of the things that we see out here in Flint. And I realized that I just loved getting a couple more days with the patient than I would have in the emergency medicine setting, which helped me to kind of rule that out. Um, and I think right after that, I had my peds, my peds rotation and, you know, I just don't quite, I just don't like having the conversation of, you know, vaccines for your children. I don't (laughs) like the anti-vaxxer talk. I realize my patience is just not what it needs to be for parents. Um, and I, I really didn't, uh, enjoy seeing like any cases of abuse and things like that. So kind of cut peds out for me and left me with internal medicine, yeah, process of elimination. Gotcha, gotcha. And when did you decide to pursue uh, the field of medicine? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm Nigerian, so 
It was I only had three options: being a doctor, a lawyer, engineer. Maybe a fourth option would be a disappointment. But, um, oh no! <laughs> I mean, I think luckily for me that I was I was already interested in medicine. I had seen how uh, how providers had really played an integral role in, you know, my family and our well-being from like seeing my grandparents receive care in Nigeria to my mom here in the U.S. Um, when she had breast cancer twice uh, growing up. And and then just also as I just began to pursue my own experiences, um, just in the community, I did a lot of like community health worker type work in college. And I realized that I wanted to have a hand in uh, the care of folks coming from underserved communities, immigrant populations, um, and in a way that wasn't just like on the public health level. Like I knew I wanted to understand and have a grip on on that information as a just as a foundation, but I wanted to help them in making decisions. I wanted to um, be a part of their care in a way that was that was more just more hands on than what I was kind of getting exposed to at the time. So because of like a lot of the experiences that I had, I was able to confirm it for myself as opposed to it just being like my parents told me this is what I needed to do. Um, and I think it was especially important for me to like confirm it as like, this is the main way, this is the only way that I see myself making an impact and the kind of impact that I wanted to make um, that actually helped me to make it through. Cause this journey is no joke. Yeah, who, who are you telling? Oh my God. So where did you go to college? I went to uh, UCLA out in Los Angeles. So stayed pretty near home. Surprisingly, I was trying to get out. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm sure you're trying to get, I never met a Californian that didn't want to get back to California though. You know, surprisingly, it's not calling me back just yet. Wow. Yeah. I, I definitely wanted to, I left when I finally did leave home, like I went to UCLA for undergrad, then I went to a uh, university of Southern California down the street, our rival uh, for my master's in public health. And for whatever reason, I still just had that urge to leave, you know, California. And I think that there's something, there's there's a kind of growth that can only be gained from being away from home. Um, and so I, I'm very glad that I had the opportunity to come to med school, you know, somewhere completely different from what I was used to. But I think, I think I'm still enjoying the fact that I have season. Michigan isn't the best of delineating <laughs> spring to summer. They have like a whole right. lot of winter and then it's just hot. Um, so hopefully I get to go somewhere where it's pretty equal. Nice. So in college, what did you study? I uh, got my bachelor's of science in biology. Not what I, not what I expected it to be. <laughs> I'll say that. Uh, my high school advisor had, had also been my biology teacher. I went to a really small high school. Like my graduating class was with 50 students. Um, oh, wow. Yep. And she, while, I mean, definitely well-intentioned, you know, she was like, oh, you did good in biology, so you probably want to be a biology major. And I was like, I guess that makes sense. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I think I just always knew I had to go to college, and I didn't put too much thought into it outside of that I wanted to make sure that I was studying the human body. And at my school, biology included the human body, but in the general, <laughs> you know, uh, world of education, it did not. Yeah. And I got stuck with plants and animals and insects, and that was pretty, pretty brutal. But you made it through. By the grace of God. <laughs> yeah, and, and then uh, and then you decided to go on and complete this Master's of Public Health. What led you to make that decision? Yeah, so like I uh, mentioned before, I did a lot of like community health work in undergrad. Um, one of the main being is this, it's called the Black Hypertension Project. 
And it was a student-run project. By that time, it had been like 20 or 30 years uh, in existence in the Los Angeles area. And so what we did was that on the weekends, we went out to community centers, so like barbershops, salons, rec centers, and we would have gestations for folks to come and get their blood pressure read, to get their BMI uh, information, and just also just allow us to engage in conversations about diet and exercise and about um, making sure that folks were connected to primary care physicians in the area and so on and so forth. And so I think that by having to go out into different parts of LA, like LA is, LA is huge. And the part where that I grew up in was very, it was definitely medically underserved, but it was different than like going into like Compton and Watts and mm-hmm. Inglewood, just like the knowledge base that I had growing up. Like my parents understood the the beauty of having access to healthcare, even if we were just going to the emergency room, because for a while we didn't have insurance, you know, my parents were immigrants. And so I think because they had that and they went to school, they had education that it was the, a lot of like the basic information of like, what's a healthy, what's healthy food look like? What should your plate look like? You know, that was something that I grew up knowing. And so by engaging with the community and realizing that this wasn't common knowledge for folks, I think I started questioning like, okay, so, so how, how is it that I have this knowledge base and they don't, how is it that, that when I'm driving around, you know, uh, go into these different bases, how's it that I haven't seen a grocery shop in 20 minutes? You know, yeah. it's like it's like those just those basics, like the the level of access that folks in different communities had within LA was completely different from from um, my neighborhood. And so I wanted to understand, like, how did that come to be? I wanted to understand health behavior and how do we actually address it? How do we motivate people to 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 make a change for themselves? And also, again, like that baseline, like how was our how were our communities built? Why are they like this? And how can we address it from from like that public health standpoint? So. Being a part of that organization for the four years that I was um, in college, I started off as a volunteer, ended up as the director for the last two years. That kind of made me, one, learn about the field of public health and understand that I needed, that I wanted and felt like I needed to know more to be the best uh, physician that I could be in the future. Yeah, that is fantastic. And I know those skills and the things you learned are going to serve you throughout, serve you and your patients throughout your career. Yeah, definitely. I think it already has. Actually, because moving to Flint, like one of the reasons why I wanted to come to Michigan State was because students, if you got into a specific program, leadership for medicine for the underserved, you were automatically placed in Flint for your third and fourth year for your clinical experiences. And at the time uh, that I was applying, you know, the Flint water crisis was happening. So go back. So the medical school has different pipelines within the program? Yes. So... Michigan State, it's like a community-based medical school. So in your third and fourth year, you can, like we have a lottery system where you can get placed in different uh, communities across the state of Michigan, from rural up in like the upper peninsula, like low-key Canada, um, to, (laughs) (laughs) you know, to like Detroit suburbs or what have you. And so one of the locations is Flint and like the spots are few. And so they have two different like certificate programs that are based in Flint. So you automatically get, get the spot if you get into those programs when you're admitted wow. to the medical school. So one was like a public health certificate program. I already had the MPH, didn't need that. So the other option was if I applied to this leadership for medicine for the underserved program. And if I got in, I automatically was going to get be placed in Flint come third year as opposed to going into this lottery system and ending up anywhere. Gotcha. 
Yeah. So ended up getting into that program and then deciding to come to, uh, to Michigan state because of that. Um, and so now living in Flint, like it's, it's the opportunity to live in a place where crisis has kind of wreaked havoc on, on, on the people and to get to see what characteristics the people have developed and get to live and work with them has been just a, it's honestly a phenomenal experience. I wouldn't have had it any other way. What have you seen uh, clinically from the fallout of the, the Flint water system? Yeah, I mean, I definitely haven't seen any of the things that were kind of reported uh, when it first came out in terms of like what they were seeing in the kids in terms of lead poisoning and such. Um, but I think that the main thing that you see here is like you can see that people have left. It is like uh, sometimes it feels like a desert, a deserted place. Just when you drive around, there are so many houses that are boarded up. Every other house is boarded up. Or there are houses where arson occurred because people were trying to get money to be able to leave. But one of the main things I think that you see in the hospitals are just like the results of being in a place where despair and hopelessness is, is, is rampant. And you see a lot of addiction um, and like substance use disorders uh, and, and, and the things that come with that, some electrolyte abnormalities from alcohol use disorder and so on and so hmm. forth. So a whole lot of that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's crazy to think about. Cause we definitely, you know, years ago we saw the Flint water crisis play out in national news and then the cameras left and who knows mm-hmm. what happened next, but there, there you are. Yeah. Yeah. So you're able to earn this uh, certificate in leadership in medicine. And I assume it along the way you were involved in the student national medical association. Yeah, so I mean, I started off in the program, and once I was elected president elect of the SMA in what 2019, uh, my leadership was like, "Look, girl, you don't need all this. <laughs> the requirements <laughs> of the program, with what you already have on your plate, are probably going to weigh you down a little too much. So let's just you can you're already going to have the spot in Flint, so just come. You'll, you're going to learn. You're going to learn what we would give you in this certificate program, anyways. You know, so I ended up not being able to finish the actual certificate because of the new responsibilities that I had with the Student National Medical Association. But still, it's been a great experience overall. And uh, so you're elected president-elect 2019, and then 2020 president of the organization. Yes, yes. So I started uh, my presidency in a pandemic. And then, because uh, every year you had the conference, so yeah, you had to audible and, and pivot to a virtual platform. Yeah, so last year, I think we had about three weeks to flip it, and so, Oof. yeah, very short amount of time. And our convention planning uh, co-chairs at the time, now Dr. Deshaun Hickman, uh, who's an emergency out at Highland Hospital in California, and Dr. Abner Murray out of University of Miami, they really, they held it down. They're a long time. Uh, SNMA members and leaders. A lot of times we have a lot of students that are MD-PhD, so they get to kind of cycle around through all of our leadership positions. So they were two of our longtime leaders, and I think we were really blessed to have them at that time for them to be able to help us handle that situation. So we're about to go into another virtual conference, um, hopefully the last. Hopefully the last. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hope for all parties involved, it's the last virtual conference because, yeah, SNMA is is such a fantastic uh, organization and fantastic conference. Yeah, I think um, 
I think a lot of people, I mean, myself included, it's really, it's a really tough pill to swallow, you know, because if you've ever been to our annual medical education conference, you know that when you bring black people together, people of color together, people that are all aligned with the same mission, um, and that is the mission of the SNMA, when you bring us all together, there's so much power in that space. Yes. There's so much healing and support and encouragement within the space. Just from the workshops that we offer, the opportunities to network with um, residency program directors to medical school admissions folk, um, and to just network with each other and be able to see people that look like you that are in all all levels from pre-med to, to the highest attending and CEOs at their various institutions. And so not being able to be together physically, I think, has been uh, really tough for folks, especially for those of us that are graduating, uh, because at every AMEC, you know, we get to see the graduates yeah. um, walk down the, 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 the walkway at the chair's banquet um, and receive their stole, and you get to hear where they match to and where they're going, and it's just such a joyous occasion. So, I mean, definitely for me as a fourth year, this, that's something that I looked forward to for so long. And so not being able to do that, is, it's, it's still, I'm still mourning the loss of that, but we're <laughs> trying to make up for it in the virtual capacity. Yeah, SNMA is such an incredible organization. I mean, some people don't realize that mostly through the efforts of SNMA and, uh, and other similar organizations on a smaller scale, there's probably, what, one or two degrees of separation between your average black physician? Yes, especially because SNMA is so, we're still, we, we are still pretty involved with the NMA, the National Medical Association, which is for, um, you know, black physicians. And even like, yeah, at our, at our conference, NMA comes through and they normally do a workshop discussing like from SNMA to NMA and what you can expect out of your NMA membership. And they also welcome all of the graduates into the NMA with like an NMA pin or and like a welcome speech and things like that. So definitely the the connection that we have to physicians. Like I grew up not knowing any black physicians. I didn't meet my first black physician until I was like twenty four. Wow. And so yeah, and so just being in that space, it's really it's really life changing. Yeah. So as the president elect and then the current national president, what are some of the roles and responsibilities that you had to take care of? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, every other year, the national president is also uh, the student trustee to the NMA. So I fell on a year where not only was I elected into the position of president-elect, but I also became the student trustee um, on the board of the NMA. So I've had a lot more, (laughs) a lot more responsibilities than the average uh, president. Um, And so, for the president of the SNMA, you know, you're the, you're the face, you're the, the, the voice of the organization. And so, and you're like the programmatic arm. And so when it came to any of our national programs from pipeline work to our national leadership institutes that happen in June, January, and September every year to AMEC and any other like uh, webinar or again, national program that came from my my side. And so one of the things that I have to do is that I have to appoint uh, the chairs to the national committees. We have uh, 14 national committees, um, 11 which are appointed by the national president to kind of go ahead and do that work, to do the programming. So from like academic affairs to community service and health policy and legislative affairs, uh, we have to appoint those leaders and kind of also kind of give them that direction. 
So I had to create an executive agenda, which kind of detailed what my main foci would be for the year. And for me, that was like mental health, just because I was seeing how uh, the mental health of our members was, was you know, waning. Um, mm. Come to find out, it was perfect timing yeah. for the pandemic. Um, also trying to make sure that we're focusing on academic and professional development and making sure that we're increasing the exposure of uh, to of our students and our members to various specialties so that they weren't just being funneled into very specific specialties. Um, and also uh, trying to work on um, the mentorship uh, uh, capacity of the organization. Again, so like SNMA was originally created to be student governed, right? So what that means is that we kind of get have this vision of what we want we tell headquarters staff, and boom, they act it out. That's the way a lot of these big organizations work, from AMA to AMSA, the American Medical Student Association, and so on and so forth. They have huge staffing to support the work that they do. At the SNMA, that, has, that is not the case. We have a handful of staff at headquarters, but right now the organization is student-run. And I think that people don't necessarily understand that unless they have a leadership role in the organization. So we have students that are med students, right, but that are running a nonprofit, a national organization with like 6,000 plus members trying to make sure that, you know, that the budget is in order, that that we have MOUs, memorandums of understanding, that our contracts are right. So, like, we have a year to not only learn how to run a board, but also do the job. And so I think that it has been very, it is, I think that's something that, uh, that a lot of our members don't understand, that a lot of our audience doesn't understand, that the fact that this organization is still standing is a testament to the heart and soul of our students. Yeah. And so when you ask me part of what my responsibilities are, part of my responsibility is to keep morale, <laughs> to work with our board during our meetings to make sure that we understand the roles of running a board, um, and make sure that we understand that we are students first, that we have to not only not only get our students into medical school, but we also have to graduate. So I think um, while I was definitely working on creating new programming, making sure that folks understood who we were and that we increased brand awareness at large, I really was trying to make sure, too, that our, that our board of directors, that our regional leaders and chapter presidents across the nation felt supported. That, that's incredible. And, and looking back, so I was one of those people that, attended SNMA and I paid my dues and I definitely benefited, but I didn't realize until, you know, pretty much what you're saying, how much work went into it from my fellow students that were actively involved. So what would you say to folks that are like me kind of sitting on the sidelines that don't know how or, or if they're needed medical students that can get involved in SNMA? Yeah. So, I mean, every AMEC is the elections period, but I think that at the most basic level, Students, of course, if you're involved in your local chapter, that's huge because the work is done at the local level and then at regional and then at national. It all adds up, right, to have this collective impact. So one, get involved at your local chapter level. Two, see how you can be involved on the regional level because all of our regions also have their own boards. They are their own 501c3 nonprofits. Huh. And that's something that I don't think people no, understand. No, I didn't, right? didn't know so that. It's, yeah, so it's like double the work there. But then three, if you want to get a taste, an uh, understanding of what it takes to run the, to run the organization and to get, a, inner, in, to get a, a, a hands-on um, and a close-up view on the work that we do, join a national committee. 
there are committees that are just doing the work of the organization that meet monthly. Um, and so there's always room for folks to, to join, whether you're pre-med or you just started medical school and you don't want to take too much responsibility. Joining a national committee is a great step to uh, figure out how you can best serve the organization with your skills and your talents. And also just recognizing that Yes NMA is a safe space for you to grow as a leader. I think that that was one of the main reasons why I sought out uh, leadership opportunities within the SNMA. I started with, we have this program called our National Future Leadership Project. And so we take on 10 pre-meds and 10 med students every year um, and provide them with a series of webinars to break down like the structure of the organization, the history and how it's run. And then they get tasked with a project. Maybe they're working with the national committee to streamline one of their, one of the products that they're doing and handle the logistics. Or maybe they're helping us with like income diversification because they're a part of the strategy team. There are so many ways that you can get involved and, and, and allow yourself to at least learn about the organization so you can see how it might fit with your own medical journey and your own journey as a leader. So there's so many opportunities <laughs> for sure to get involved. Get involved. And, and what that looks like five years down the road as somebody who's been in practice for a little bit is those skills that you learn through these organizations you're able to use in your career five years down the road. Those connections that you make serving on these committees. I've got friends that were very involved with SNMA and their network has maintained through the years to the point that they want to launch projects. They have a group of people they can go to. They have the skill set already mm-hmm. there to follow those side interests and, and passions. Right. That's definitely something that all of our alum talk about, about how great their network is because of the work that they did with the organization and the skill sets that they have. That's very unique. They come in for residency, like already having the ability to run a meeting and to run a board and knowing exactly how to delegate and also how to say no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Yeah. Robo, as, as if you needed anything else to uh, fill up your time and, and your schedule, in addition to all the things you do academically and for the community, you also are an avid traveler and an avid photographer. In fact, you have your own website where you have some of your work. How long have you been passionate about photography? I have been, well, I think I found out that photography was just something that I needed to do a uh, senior year of high school. So like tw- in the early, not the early 2000s, I'm not going to age myself, but it's been a while. <laughs> but I think I've been uh, at least getting paid for it since 2010. So maybe 11 years now. Um, and I was a full-time professional photographer for four years before medical school. So I've been doing it for a while, but I think this exploration of, of how I can use photography uh, and, and medicine has been something that's definitely more recent to medical school. And how have you incorporated photography and medicine? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the really easy ways that I realized that I could do it was just by kind of focusing on what, what, what I was focusing on before medical school, the need for representation, the need for folks to see people that look like them, whether that's in the fashion industry, in terms of the models that we see and what we see as a standard of beauty, but in terms of medicine, seeing that there are doctors that look like us and there's a need for us in this space. And so I think my very first project that I did was first year of med school during Black History Month. The first six months of med school living in Grand Rapids, Michigan was definitely a culture shock <laughs> and, and then some. 
I mean, we just saw, I don't know if you watched it, but then um, Megan and uh, Megan Markle and uh, oh, Harry interview yeah. with Oprah. Yeah, I mean, people are going crazy about it, but I think the main thing that I saw was it was too familiar, hmm. too familiar of trying to believe the best yeah. in a system that was not built for you. And so I was experiencing kind of echoes of that uh, since like since the third week of school. And I had realized the importance of the students of color that had really rallied around me at the time. All of them were SMA members. No, no, no surprise there. Yeah. Um, and so I did, a, I, I asked them if they could come over, take a study break. I kind of shared with them this vision that I had of just like the fact that I felt like I, I had them like at my shoulder, like I was leaning on them and we were leaning on each other to make it through um, this journey. And so I kind of had a series of poses in my head. We kind of practiced it in my apartment because it was winter and my Cali blood was still too warm for the outside. <laughs> Um, and so we practiced the, the poses and then went outside and I did the shoot in like seven minutes and you can understand like med, med school, you got to study. So anytime that I photographed anyone outside of this project or for whatever, it was like always quick. I had the poses already in my mind or I had already written them down. And so I was one and done five minutes, 10 minutes shoots. That was it. So we literally shot this in seven minutes and I came back and we all started studying again. And I finally took the time to edit it and share it on my Instagram and, and, and on my website. And it kind of went viral. A couple pages reposted it. And my school got wind of it. And this was one that was just like all women. All women were uh, the focus of uh, the shoot. And so I had a lineup to do an all men's one uh, the following week. So I did that. And again, my school ended up sharing it. And I think that was like the first, it was called on the shoulder of your of our ancestors. And it was kind of like my first, venture into, uh, I guess, storytelling, but within like this medical space of understanding the need for diversity in medicine and the need for, you know, diversity in our, in our medical school classes so that folks come in and they are not alone. Yeah. So I've kind of done things along those lines. Um, but I hope that in the future, you know, when I get into residency after, maybe after intern year, I'll, I'll remember this, but oh, absolutely. <laughs> that I want to, yeah, because I know Anthony is crazy, but that I really want to know or learn how to be a great storyteller when it comes to my patients so that I'm able to, you know, share their stories and share images with their permission, of course, that allow us to engage in conversations just amongst our communities, but just also to open the eyes of folks so that there's more empathy and so that we're humanizing a lot of the the things that we're seeing in our communities. That's beautiful. Yeah. And that's a space that definitely needs to be filled. You will definitely have time. Yes, intern year is busy, but it's not the end of your life. You're going to have time to continue on with this passion project and keep bringing us uh, these beautiful images. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> and, and of course, I, I have to note most recently in February, you're keeping it in the family feature, featured um, pictures of Dr. Amari Young, who was my mentor at Howard University. Oh, wow. Ain't that crazy? Yeah. So I, I knew about his dad, <laughs> his uncle, and uh, I remember being with him because, you know, Howard, we went all out for match day. So I was there when he opened his letter to go to his uh, top choice residency at Mass General. He took a picture and, and that was my mentor, man. He helped me through so much. It was It was beautiful to see him and his family captured the way you did. 
thank you, thank you. Yeah, that's that's crazy. What a small world. Oh, absolutely. Dr. Obo, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come and chat with us, help us celebrate you as an amazing woman that you are here on the Black Doctors Podcast. For folks interested in following you, seeing your art, uh, how can they get a hold of you? How can they find you online? Yeah, so they can definitely find me on Instagram at O-S-O-S-E-E. And also they can find me on my website, which is my first and last name, O-S-O-S-E-O-B-O-H.com. Same first and last name for Twitter too. And I'd be happy to connect. Awesome. I'll definitely be following your story and be looking forward to seeing where you match in the next couple of weeks. But thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.